it's kind of like you're talking about there with the Great Depression, though, Jessica. Isn't that something that would play into it? It's not just the national spirit, but coming out of that that time, you need something to focus on. This is oh no, yeah, and there's as we know from all of human history, there's no better economic jumpstart than a good old fashioned war. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you see it a lot. You see it a lot today. Don't think you don't see it because you do now it has a different face and it has a little bit different look. Um, it's also important to realize not only is that when I say nationalism, I'm not talking like necessarily white nationalism, though there's still a lot of that going on. It's this sense of I value my country. And it, Richard's right. It's unfathomable or unfathomable to us today to, to wrap our mind around that. And I think some of that is the world's still a big place at, at the time that that Pearl Harbor comes about. And I mean in a big place in that now, um, you know, a lot of people scream about it, but we are kind of a globalized society. Yeah. That's just the way of it. Um, and so the world seems a lot smaller in 2021 than it did in the 30s and 40s, right? The world was still big. We still had a lot of distance to cover, a lot of places to go. So in that way, a geopolitical border meant a lot more in that day and time than it maybe does today. But I agree. I can't wrap my head around it, it just being like a point of I'm going to commit suicide if I can't serve my country fighting. You know, there are a lot of ways to serve your country, sir. We still need to manufacture things. We still need to. It's an un... I, I can't possibly picture... Richard's right. It's just something that I don't think will ever occur again or, or a belief or a move like that. It was just uh, like, you know, it's the famous woke the sleeping giant. Like, no shit. Oh, my God. America said, hold my beer. Yeah. <laughs> it just got, it got real in a hurry. Well, it's also about information control. At that point, you're talking about the, the size of the world. At that point, where do you get your information from? There are not a lot of places. You got some newspapers. You've got if you if you're fortunate enough to to be able to see the newsreels, you get you get that. But uh, television is not really a thing at this point. Not in no. The same you've got way. radio, and yeah. that and that's about it. And you're exactly right. It's this controlled narrative, and um, God knows there is a lot of censorship that occurs even before America was involved in the war, because you've got, you know, war mongers on one side, you've got people that want to be isolationists on the other. So there's a lot of controlled narrative up until that point coming into people's homes in that it's just so hard to think about us being that isolated when now we can get news from any news source in any country at the click of a button, but that to be the only thing you're fed. And so in a way, you know, ignorance is bliss. This is America. We're this great country we've got. And you're right. That also contributes to that weird, this, this weird space and time where we're in a world that we recognize today, right? Industrialization mm -hmm. has occurred. We're massively militarized. We've got fucking airplanes. And then, on the other hand, 
we're getting our news from one source on a radio <laughs> and, and things are things are being painted for us. The picture is painted for us in that there's not another side. They have done something horrible. They attacked us. Not the, the average American's not going to know anything about tariff issues. They're not going to think about the racism that occurred. Hell, we were still racist AF in our own country. You know, that kind of stuff doesn't factor in to that lens that we have today when we look back at it and go, holy shit, like I can't imagine an America that would mobilize that way. So it's always very interesting to me, but I like to always point out in that sense, the world is a much smaller place. So back to our main narrative and and we know kind of how it shakes out (laughs) really quickly. Japan's going, well, we got to fucking do something. We can't let this stand. We've got to draw America in, out. We got to get them in the picture, out of the picture. We have to do something to attempt to get back those resources we need or to buy time to try to develop the resources we need to keep our holdings. And so boils down to Pearl Harbor, uh, 3,000 plus casualties. Of course, that's not just death. A casualty, I always think it's interesting to point out. That means like an injury in which one cannot continue to fight and death, like both of those things. So we've got 3,000 plus casualties. You wake the sleeping giant, as it were, and we go to war with Japan. It's, it's such an interesting, and it's kind of, to Richard's point, I... I, I like the Pacific almost a little bit more than I like Band of Brothers, which don't get me wrong. I wept like a child the day that Dick Winters died, you know, like uh, the real Dick Winters. It was uh, just, oh, I was an ugly like mess. But I think it's interesting because when we look at Japan, that how we got there, we almost the United States almost has its own little appeasement issue. We focus so much on Britain and Germany and France and all that going on. We were interested. We had our own little kind of pre-Cold War, Cold War going on in the Pacific with the Japanese, if you will. Um, a lot of appeasement occurs there. A lot of ignoring the writing on the wall, not meeting in the middle, weird racism, all that stuff. And it leads us into a very different war on a very different front. Now, and it's not like, oh, no, no, you go. It's all you, man. Okay. It's not like we have this gigantic military. We mentioned it before. So this happens and it's not like, okay, two months later, here we go. United States basically has to build their army, their navy, their air like air like all the branches. They've got to build them from scratch. That means manufacturing, that means recruitment, that means training, that means building all the infrastructure to get all these things done. So this whole time Japan's been building up and building up and then they go and attack and they have all these islands and all this territory that they've just been building up and putting people and doing whatever they can and then building air, air you know, uh, airfields and all these things in it. The United States just, just isn't really prepared for a war. So they've got to kick the manufacturing section sector into like overdrive to do uniforms and ammo and weapons and vehicles and 
it, it sounds silly, but at the time, you know, the, the German military was powered a lot by horses and the United States was building vehicles to transport their goods and people around. And so it's just, there was a it's lot my, going on. It's my favorite could, quote from Band of Brothers and uh, from the book as well. Say hello to Ford and General fucking Motors. <laughs> like, with, think about that. They've got horses and carts. America rolls out Jeeps. Tank, like, we've got fucking cars taking us from place to place makes a big difference and all that shit has to be transported you're right think about that think about how quickly i know it seems like a while in 42 when we really start shipping people out we've not only got to train a massive amount of soldiers but we have to manufacture all of it. think how quick that turnaround is like how what a fucking workforce and what a workhorse man like Japan's already ready. They do that, and they just start seizing everything they can get their hands on in the Pacific. America, you're exactly right. We have to build all of this from scratch, and we do it in a an amount of time that absolutely fucking boggles the mind. So here's a question for you. You know, I, I got one for both of you on this one. Um, from a uh, from a historical mindset for you jessica and uh i don't know from a, a automobile uh slight, slightly chilly in a, in a car mindset from uh, richard what world war ii films do you think best capture either the reality of the conflict or the feeling of the conflict oh that's a tough one Um, I feel like the the war itself on in so many fronts is the realism of it for one legs being blown up apart faces shot off you know explosions and blood and guts and goo that is the actual representation of a war where it's not like someone's hiding here and you move around it's like okay I have 30 of you and we need to go up there, um, go and 20 of you are dead. Like the realism aspect of it. I just don't think most people were prepared to handle slash media wasn't prepared to present it in, in, in a world where there's ratings and there's MPAA and blah, blah, blah. Well, that was 68 you and after anyway. You can't. You can represent those things, and and before that, your your pro your your design your your films couldn't actually accurately represent the realism either, right? So that that was a problem in itself. So I think it, it lends to more of the modern era of of films that can somewhat accurately portray the the violence aspect of it. But I think a lot of the movies have been able to, in a certain aspect, whether it's super cheesy or my favorite term that I've invented, Hollywooded up, where it's there's there's an emotional aspect of it, too, because when you're 17 and you go into the military and you think all oh, is gun, you know, roses and, you know, shit don't stink and stuff like that. And then you get there and it's like the real world. What happens when you come back? 
what happens with your interactions with the people that when you're there, when you come back, what type of world are you in when you were just in this awful world for two, three years? You know, there's all, there's so many different aspects that I think are hard to truly represent. And I think the least of violent aspect, maybe I'm just not remembering things, but you got that aspect from saving private Ryan, whether that mm-hmm. was a good fake story, real story, overacting, underacting, you got a sense at least of hopping onto a beach and a hail of gunfire that you could never possibly imagine ever happening unless you were right there. So I think from that aspect, that was the first one that was just like, wow, you know, like being a veteran who was there and then going and watching that movie, I just couldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if so many of those people just got up and left because they couldn't deal with it. A little PTSD, right? Yeah. Yeah. Fucking shell shock for sure. What we used to term it. I agree. Like, I think that's the first time because, you know, for a long time in movies and film, we're used to that. The sure, the sands of Iwo Jima type, like, you know, John Wayne, Mm -hmm. Lee Marvin, all those kind of, all those kind of movies where things are whitewashed. And then you're exactly right. When Saving Private Ryan came out and you had to think about the reality of fucking German guns and mortar shells and just mowing people down with these, like, just machine, having to take a position in, in a Gallipoli-esque sort of way. Like, you got to go up that ridge and just seeing how fucking horrific injuries, casualties, uh, you're not getting pulled out of there right away, you know? It's not, like, just... You're exactly right. Saving Private Ryan, whatever you think of the movie now, however you view the movie now, at the time that it came out, it made that shit so real. Like, like things that people have to look at and try to kind of imagine. It's the same as we we don't know. We, we don't have film from the time. We can't see what the Normandy landings look like. But I always think of it kind of like that Chernobyl show, or Chernobyl show that um, HBO did. Even though we never saw it or knew actually what happened, it it does give you a visualization that for the first time makes it very fucking real to an audience to imagine something like that. I think that's a good one. For better or worse, Saving Private Ryan, like, gets your head wrapped around, oh, shit, this is real. Yeah, that, that was that was pretty impressive. Um I, I could have sworn that he was going to say Overlord from 2018 because, you know, Nazi vampires. That was, that was going to be it. But so what what I kind of wanted to say is, for our listeners anyway, the number of films based on or set during or influenced by World War II is just staggering, the number. I mean, this will continue to be a major topic for a lot of people to cover for a long time, but there's over 7,500. So, I mean, it's there, there's a lot to choose from. Um, but if you want to see some very interesting shifts, I mean, the, in the, in the early kind of glorified, uh, uh, 
glorified movies, kind of like what you're talking about, things like Wings of the Navy mm-hmm. in 1939. That's that's about yep. as much as uh, propaganda, U.S. propaganda as you're going yeah. to get. Um, or, uh, you know, a film that's still kind of referenced today in 1940, The Great Dictator, Charlie Chaplin, uh, <laughs> who has an uncanny resemblance to Hitler <laughs> in that in that film. Um, those are, those are some of the, some of the early films. And of course you see the shift uh, in 41 where the, the population needs to be distracted with adventure and some of the chains are let loose on the film industry. And you start to see some comedies. That's where you get things like caught in the draft with Bob Hope and great guns with Laurel mm-hmm. Hardy and that, that sort of a thing. And then they kind of, that kind of continue that, that propaganda gear, um, you, and, and, and across the Pacific, uh, Atlantic Convoy, Black Dragons, and 42. So, I mean, it kind of stays that way for, for a really long time uh, up until the uh, end of the war and and the near the near after, like you were talking about the Sands of, uh, of Iwo Jima in 49. But um, the, uh, the Stranger in 46 with Orson Welles. But mm-hmm. you get a little bit of a shift when you can get can get some time separation. So I always feel like the first step after that is the romanticization of, of the mm-hmm. war. It's not so much, you know, go U S but, you know, remember this great thing we did and you start to get that in the, in the fifties and the sixties, you got like from here to eternity, uh, in 53 and bridge over the river Kwai in 57, uh, you know, you know big films to kind of, to kind of watch and, and kind of see, but then you can get, Finally, once you get some more separation, you can get some more, you can start getting into the nuggets of truth and, and the way that they're going to present things like in 61, you got the judgment at Nuremberg and, uh, and the longest day about the Normandy landings in 62. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you've got so much great stuff that you can see over the years and it's still going to have kind of a mix you know, I mean, that's not perfect. You got Mikhail's Navy in the 60s, too. So, I mean, you're still going to get that well, stuff. <laughs> and TV, you get Hogan's Heroes in the mix, that you've got all these people that have all these horrific <laughs> memories, and you have to make, like, this joke out of it, right? Oh, so funny. Hogan's We're going to try and escape again. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Um, there was that movie about the Baton Death March, too. I think you're mm-hmm. right. You can really see in film and history... And it's something I kind of have a little grounding in. Unfortunately, my film and history uh, studies tend to focus more on Vietnam, things like foreign films like Breaker Morant, where you get into it's about the Boer War, but it's actually about Vietnam. That's a shift. Whereas in the yeah. Second World War, our movies about the Second World War are about it. Like, <laughs> for, for the most part, yeah. Right. Nothing. Nothing's like deftly handled through the lens of time or... No. Any, you know, there's no, there's no craft in it for a long time. It's a lot of that. Um, in the course of what I do, uh, in a day job when I'm not just podcasting, I spend a lot of time dealing with the 20th century and Winston Churchill. And as a result, I always, you know, Lawrence of Arabia is an interesting movie. If you're going to talk about intel collection the way the world's shaped after after the war um the way everything shapes out t lawrence is an incredibly interesting figure and it's interesting how they choose to portray him how what he's doing is portrayed and that's always it's a it's a bit romanticized and the reality is yeah. t.e lawrence was trying to uh, save future generations having a whole lot of shit that we're dealing with right now whereas 
maybe you listen to the guy that's embedded and collecting intel on an entire region. And so you see that and then you have the reality of T. Lawrence and, and it's an interesting juxtaposition with the romantic, like romanticizing. Yeah. That being said, there is one film that haunts my freaking dreams. Speaking about the Second World War, we always want to talk about Nazi atrocities, nor should we minimize that. But the Japanese were no freaking slouches when it came to war atrocities. And so that takes me to Unit 731 and the men behind the sun. That fucking film will haunt my dreams forever. And it's a film that's pretty good at showing just what it was like in these almost death camp concentration camps of Japanese uh, origin, similar to what you see in Nazi Germany. But as, you know, gifted as Mangala was for being a horrible piece of shit and doing horrific things, uh, Unit 731 might might take a yeah, uh, might take the cake. Yeah, that, damn, that's that rough. But the rough men one. behind the sun is the worst film. I mean, watch it if you've got the stomach for it. Watch it and and wrap your mind around. You want to talk about some yeah. realities of war? I will. Holy hell! I will suggest before you watch that film, if you're the type of person that before you get into a pool, you kind of stick your toe in. First, watch Empire of the Sun from '87 about yeah. the Chinese occupation. That'll start to get you ready for that. <laughs> Before you really jump into the deep end. Yeah, uh, you're not just going to walk. And I really, I cannot put enough disclaimers about that movie. It is not for the faint of heart. And it is, if if you want to go into beyond curiosity, uh, it's it's really horrific. I agree. Um, Dip your toe in. Dip your toe in. (laughs) (laughs) Try to wrap your freaking head around what, what happens. Yeah in china because it's not it's something to me i think it's very interesting it's not it's not talked about um no. it does overshadow uh just because but it also has an element of genocide it has a it's just as horrific and uh, maybe a, at times a little more so yeah jesus it has got some like oh it'll it'll mess you up for life like uh or if you want to really? have, uh, if you want to have a little sympathy for the enemy, let's say, uh, go with uh, Grave of Fireflies uh, from '87, uh, anime. Uh, what it's like to be uh, children trying to survive in Japan during World War II. So it's just kind of there, there's a couple of them. They'll just they'll knock you senseless. Maybe you can tell me what the film is. I have not seen it. I saw it once. I saw it year a few years ago. Um, it's kind of a horror movie in which it's this interesting look inside Germany in which it's it's a film about all of these children who are indoctrinated, raised in this Nazi youth culture, and they're kind of ratting out their parents. I cannot. It's like the White Ribbon or something like that. Oh, I cannot think of the name of that film. I know what but you're you want to get about. like, ooh, ooh, you want some chills. That's a ch- that's chilly. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I cannot think the name of it off the top of my head. There's just so many of them. What about you, Richard? It- We're not leaving you behind, are we? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, we had, we had actually, uh, I had mentioned that to you, not necessarily those movies, I, I guess you could say, but I had had that discussion briefly with you about, I was like, I came to the realization, I was like, man, you know, you no one ever discusses or talks about 
how awful the the Japanese were to the, the Chinese and everybody else that they occupied. But like, if you go and re you read about the, the deaths or like, if you look at comparison as to like how many people died in all these places, you know, like there was a lot of Chinese folks that died in world war two, like large quantities above and beyond other countries and nationalities that had casualties from war or just were straight up raped and murdered and pillaged. It was the Chinese that took a real big hit. You know, if you look at maybe military deaths, uh, the Russians got waylaid. They got hammered. <laughs> but in terms of just like over the overall death count from, oh my, the Chinese got the short the short end of history in terms of the recognition of what happened to them in World War II. And it just, I, I wonder why. Like, why do we, we know how bad Nazi Germany was and the Holocaust. Why, why do history books not ever discuss how awful the Chinese had it? It's the political climate. I think that's all it is. You 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 can't have too much sympathy for somebody that is such a key uh, opponent in so many different arenas between resources and power and control. So Germany not really the not really that kind of uh, something to be afraid of right now. But you know you know you you and I both have run into a number of people that are have no reason to be but are afraid of China. Yeah, it's an it's an interesting one. The allies at the end of the war, and even though they didn't do a good fucking job, and a lot of that is because of things like the Windsor Files, the British kind of back out once they get a hold of the Windsor Files and are looking at shit like that. But the original allied plan was to end this belief in fascism. Fascism was the fucking enemy. You know, because at this time, a lot of time Frank, a lot of times Franco gets overshadowed mm -hmm. because you've got Mussolini and Hitler, and he chose to stay uh, neutral. But there was this growing fear of fascism, so the Allies really went out to make this shit publicly known to educate the population against fascism. And remember when I said we have that little civil war and that shift going on in China. Mao Zedong becomes the leader. China goes red. China goes communist. And already at this time in history, we are gearing up for the Cold War. We came straight out of the end of World War II and dived directly into the Cold War. And like it or not, China's on the other side of that fucking line in terms of they are now communists. So that's not publicized. Whereas the rebuilding of Western Europe, all the atrocities that occur because of fascism and socialism and socialistic ideas, we hammer that so hard and say, look, look at what they did. Whereas we don't reverse it and go and talk about monarchy isn't a threat with the end of the emperor and the demilitarization of Japan. That's not a threat anymore. We, we pretty resoundingly ended that threat, unfortunately. Yeah. And very scarily and kick off a Cold War. So that is not something that 
the allies feel like we have to pinpoint, educate, and you know what? Now they're red, they're a fucking enemy, who cares? Exactly. Is also kind of, I think you're right, it's a, it's a political climate, but what I feel like is a real problem is that that kind of continues even though the cold war quote unquote is over and even though china has a capitalist economy they very much have a totalitarian communist sort of social system and even though we say the cold war is over we're very much in that mindset so even today that gets ignored that is not a part of history we want to talk about but richard you are right because it's bad I mean, we don't even know how many people died because there were no census. Like, there was no census. There was no guesstimation. Uh, we just don't know. But it was also in the millions. We're talking that 15 million type body count. The Japanese definitely racked up, if not higher. The sad thing is we have no clue. And it's not something that really gets publicized or talked about. Um God, that was a good point, Richard. It, it always kind of, it makes me just like, you know, gives you the piss quivers that shake up the spine when you think about, oh my God, we don't even talk about this. And it is horrific. Um, I have read primary sources that I will never erase from my mind, uh, that I've read things that occurred during occupation, Japanese occupation of, of mainland China, that like after you read it, you want to be temporarily struck blind so you never have to read something that horrific again. Like there are no words. Yeah, that's a great example of how people can just be terrible. Oh, like it, really. I mean, China was the worst, but they... They did that in the South Pacific. They did that in India. Like it was like they were they they yeah. wanted their land and their territory and their resources. That's for sure. That it And they never, wanted everybody there to be gone. It's ours to colonize, no. ours to do with. Like whoo. Yeah. It is rough. Little, but I think you're also right that representation doesn't uh, doesn't equate to Russian losses either. What's that movie with that Fines brother at Stalingrad? That one was, uh, was always it, pretty decent. Yeah. It's, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know which one I'm talking about? I, I think it uh, is Joseph Fines is in that movie about Stalingrad. Ed Ed Harris. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. I mean, Rachel Russia Wise. was, yeah, Russia was uh, equally as, and again, Russia's got a long history. One, because they don't really care. And two, again, that same Cold War propagandizing, we didn't really care. But, uh, whoo, Russia had a rough go of it as well in were the you, Second World War. Were you talking about the Great Raid in 2005? No. No, it was enemy enemy at the gates. That's what it was. There we go. I think I haven't seen that in a billion years. 
Oh, so many. Oh, there was that yeah. great sniper film. There are just so freaking many. That's what I've, I, that blows my mind though. 7,500 plus. I yeah. had no idea. Yeah, they got, they got a ton. So, I mean, you, you could literally spend the rest of your life watching movies based just on World War II. Now, I, I don't know how, how happy you'd be. <laughs> yeah uh you're definitely gonna need some zoloft in there folks if you devote your life to that um that also being said i've never quite understood where that benchmark occurs where we see this shift and maybe it's because the folks we we got far enough away in history and then we kind of post Storm and Norman Schwarzkopf and post-Gulf War kind of got over that stars and stripes love we had. And we start to see in film the reality of these conflicts, which I always think it's such an interesting shift, right? Mm -hmm. Because here we have all these really romanticized movies for freaking five decades almost. And then all of a sudden we get these, the Saving Private Ryans, we get these oh shit films where we actually you know we've got everything from and and it extends the first world war as well which also didn't come around until world war ii films stopped being romanticized and started being realistic then you see the same shift in things like 1917 yeah that that kind of film was never made about the first world war where Mm -hmm. there's all this like horrific realism And I just, I always wonder, and I couldn't tell you because we're not separated enough, I feel like, in history to really understand where that shift in our psyche occurs as a society, where we are like, oh, no, fuck it. Don't romanticize it. Give us this horrible realism of this thing. I kind of wonder if it's maybe just a little bit that, I mean, you've got the, you got that baby boom that occurs, right? And right. You start to get stories. I mean, some of these people that experience this are starting to die off. And they don't have a lot of time left to share this, these awful things with the people around them. And so you start, I just wonder if you start just getting a more of awareness at that with just researching what your family had to endure and then and then sharing that with everybody else. I, it just it may be me uh, just fantasizing about it, but I just I know I get a little bit of that with I see a lot of people that start researching into their family history, and 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 hearing those stories, and that that's that's where you start getting that change. Because I mean, you look at it, it's really about 1970 to 1980, which is where it really starts to shift over uh, on the World War II films. And that's 30 to 40 years after. So if they were in their 20s, their 60s and 70s right now. So I just feel like maybe that's that's what <laughs> one of the, the key contributors is. Uh, that's probably. And then I wonder, you know, how much how much the realism of Vietnam and what a horrible war that was. Yeah. And almost this there's this movement to return to a war that's clear cut, black and white, good versus evil. And at the same time, there's also a counterculture movement in society. I wonder if it's, yes, this was a clear-cut war of good and evil, but let's start looking at the reality, and it's no different than as horrific as Vietnam was. Like, this is some horrific shit. There's there's nothing to be 
fantasized about here. Yeah. It's war is war is war. And I, I wonder, I don't know. I couldn't honestly tell you. Um, there's just not been enough time to analyze it in any sense. Uh, God, I just realized how annoying historians are, guys. Well, I haven't <laughs> had enough time. I really haven't had enough separation to analyze that sort of thing. God, we are the worst. People are right. That's why everybody in the humanities wants to throw tomatoes at you. Academics, man. We're all like that to a certain extent. <laughs> Academics. But I, to go back to Richard's point, though, just a, a good solid with realism and also the idea that these guys don't didn't view themselves as fucking heroes, the realities of war. I... One, I cannot recommend the book by Stephen E. Ambrose of Band of Brothers and the Pacific enough. But also, like, give them a watch. If you want to be somewhere between, I don't want to be just, I, I want to sleep this month, to, <laughs> you know, like, to, but I do want to understand, kind of, I want to try to wrap my head around the reality of what, of what, these guys experienced what kind of characters were in this. Um, it's Those are really good. And they're also really good for this one simple fact. The Western Front could not have been more opposite from the Eastern Front. You know, there's none of that, yeah. like, honorable enemy shit mm -hmm. in the Pacific, just so we know. If you thought it was bad in the West with Nazis, you have no idea. There's no surrender. That's not a that's not a fuck around term. Japan did not surrender. So you fought for every square inch of space and they put everything into play that there was in the book at the time. And it was so much. I don't want to say it's more horrific, but those guys in the Pacific fought a very different and in some ways way nastier war. Well, that's based on then, their philosophies. I mean, more than anything else. If you look at uh, things like uh, the writings of uh, Miyamoto Musashi, I mean, he yes. it's, it's all about what's more honorable than success, than winning. So if I have to trick somebody that has a better skill to blade than I do by lying down in a boat as it comes to shore and he gets curious and looks over and I pop up and stab him, well, I won. So it's very honorable. <laughs> Yeah, and then afterwards, I'm going to desecrate the body of my enemy to make a fucking point so that nobody else wants to enter this island and try me. Yeah. But again, the, Japan the Japanese underestimated America's hold my beer attitude. Like, all right, fine, fine. It was uh, surprisingly Russian of us in a way. <laughs> you know, like, you've got so many and we've got so many and we'll, you know, we'll kill... 30 million of us to kill however many of you there are. And yeah. so it's, a, it's very, yeah, like, and, and we always want to paint it in terms of black and white, good versus bad. Obviously no. Nazi Germany was very bad, but then when I view the, the you view the Pacific, we're both horrible. Yeah. <laughs> we both did horrible shit. So it's, it's a different war. It's a different approach. Um, not to negate Japanese war crimes because they were, yeah. Whew, as far as war crimes go, they rate up there like with Ivan the Terrible type war crimes. 
Um, but it's it's a much more interesting conflict and uh, vastly understudied, in my experience. And I think the related part of it being relatable, if you go to most of those areas in Germany, you know, a lot of the kids that went over to Europe in general, so whether it's Germany or the Netherlands or France or wherever, a lot of that area was like a lot of the areas all throughout the, the Midwest and the West in the United States, fields, farms, churches, you know, forests, it snowed. It, it was, it was like a lot of those folks in Europe interacted with each other and did the same types of pastimes that the people in America did. So when you went and you fought those people, it was like you were, you were, fighting a similar set of people who had grown up with a similar set of values in a certain sense, like to hunt, like to fish or farmers. Um, mm -hmm. Some went to school, those types of things. But when you're in the Pacific, it's like, I just don't think that those people ever thought like, Hey, I'm going to be on this. island." Like, where is that one? Where is this Island at? Most of the people went over there had no clue. Like they barely knew where Japan was at let alone the islands that they're hopping onto. And, and two, it was all tropical or subtropical. So it's just like palm trees, marshlands, grass. Most of those people had never been in an environment like that. I mean, even if you went to Florida, you never ran into anything like what you would get in those islands out there. So they had no clue on how to sleep, eat, you know, dress, whatever. I mean, the army was supposed to do those things or provide those things for you. The military was supposed to provide those things for you, but it was just a completely different environment that these kids had never seen or been around. And they were so far away from home that they had to ride a boat forever just to get out there. And it's just like, okay, now I'm on the, and then you get there and you look at this place and like, man, this is awesome. Like right now, wouldn't you want to be on a beach? with palm trees instead of being somewhere where it's 40 degrees and overcast and gross. I mean, a lot of people would like that and you get on this beach and it's just awesome. And then all of a sudden people want to kill you. And then <laughs> when you kill all of them and more come and they run at you with swords and you have various types of automatic firearms and they're running at you with swords you, you have to come to that realization of what you said. Like, man, these guys aren't, they're not messing around. Like, they really don't like me. They want to kill me. And they're not going to stop until they kill me or I'm dead. I mean, Germans didn't run at you with swords. That just didn't happen. And the Japanese people, they just, like you said, they, they, they didn't give up. They weren't going to give up. What were we going to have? That's that's an excellent point. One, I mean, like running at you with swords, you've got a bayonet. Both of you lose your freaking weapon. It results in hand to hand, beat each other to death with freaking rocks kind of combat in the Pacific. Like it really had more of a tenor of the First World War in places. But you're exactly right. Imagine, my God, look at this tropical paradise in a place you never even knew existed. And every single campaign in the Pacific, 
There wasn't, there was one D-Day in Europe every day in the Pacific. Every new island was a D-Day because you have to take that beachhead. You have to take the island every goddamn day. Like wherever it was you landed was a new D-Day. And just how horrific, like you see all this beauty. You're exactly right. What an interesting juxtaposition, a place you're never going to see again like this. And then when you get on board, you have people that there, there's no, oh, we're going to surrender. Oh, that like, it's you or me. Like, and I know we always laugh about that idea of, um, it, you know, it's even an episode of Archer, uh, a Japanese guy that's holding out. That shit happened. People that they found on islands who are unaware that the war ended. Yeah. Like souls. That is how intense the ideology behind the Pacific was. And I'm not saying it's A-OK to drop a nuclear bomb, more or less, too. But I also do, quite frankly, kind of see the reasoning for it. Because can you imagine the number? I think it's a million plus to take mainland Japan. Think yeah. about that. They've just been defending. They've just been taking back islands. And it lasted longer than a war in all of Europe. Like, I, I can't even, it blows my mind. It's just such a different front. And it's something that's not widely publicized and it is just so intense and so horrific like I, I can't even yeah it's it's just really it's really in, in every everyone's mind at the point you just gotta end it endings are really important speaking of <laughs> we're out of time <laughs> but uh no, I mean, th this was fantastic. I, I, I cannot thank you enough for coming on and talking some, some World War II with us and kind of getting into the nitty-gritty and, and uh, some, some sides that, that did not necessarily always see the light quite so much as what everybody is used to, whether through cinema or history. Um, we definitely have to have you come back again, maybe talk about a different war next time. Well, we could always talk about um, as fascinating as the Eastern Front. And I really hope I put it in as I, I always try to, and this is what we do with our history podcast, is put it in the simplest possible terms. I'm not sitting here giving you dates. I'm not giving you names of the people involved. I'm not doing this. I'm trying to tell you a narrative in which you kind of understand in basic terms, in a story how the hell something happened or how we got to this place. But that being said, and because you guys love movies, this is this is the one thing that blows my mind. There has never been a movie made. I think there was one back in the 70s with, with Burt Lancaster, and it was a terrible movie. In fact, I know it is. But it's a thing called The Battle for Castle Itta. And it's on the Western Front in which... The SS is so horrible that it's the final battle of the Western Front. The Wehrmacht troops actually side with the French and the Americans against the SS in a schloss in, in Austria. There's no movie of it, but it is it is crazy. Like, that's how terrible hyper-Nazis were, that normal German people were like, fuck these guys, I'm on your side, let's get them. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's somehow not terribly, not terribly surprising. Now, the movie she's talking about is not called The Island of Dr. Moreau, so don't get don't get confused and watch <laughs> that one. But uh, you know, the other guys, those the other day, we can always talk about Cold War. I I uh, was blown away once again by Doctor Strange Love. I hadn't watched it in about six months. It's in my top five favorite movies. Freaking Peter Sellers as that project paperclip Nazi just cracks my shit up hey. every time. Sellers is amazing. He was a genius. But thank you again. Oh, do you have any uh, uh, projects coming up that you want to plug here before we uh, pull the plug on our program? Uh, we have so many guests. Um, it's quite frankly amazing. We're putting out a lot of guest tours. We're going to have a lot of... Uh, People that are far more academically minded than me and far more important. Uh, so you guys can definitely listen to that. There's going to be a lot of 20th century history and a lot of interviews. It's at Body Count Pod on Twitter and Facebook, bodycounthistorypod.com. You can find everything you want to know there. And uh, I pretty much do what I've just done every week. That is awesome. Well, thank you again for, for joining us. And of course, don't forget, dear pudding people, that you can always find us on Twitter at Real Pudding Guys or on Instagram and Facebook at Pudding Guys or, of course, on our favorite Patreon, where for just $1 a month, you can help support the Pudding Guys as we bring on fantastic guests like Miss Jessica Manor and we buy new equipment that makes us sound better and more intelligent or at least better. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And we appreciate all of our supporters, and we hope you enjoyed this little traipse through history and to some of the nastiness that has occurred over time. But until next time, uh, stay, stay warm, stay safe under your covers, and enjoy some cinema. Bye.